Anthony Fantano here, Internet's busiest music nerd. Hope you're doing well, and it is time for another edition of our Needle Drop podcast, our weekly review roundup podcast, where we go over some of the best reviews and videos from the Needle Drop and Fantano channels over the course of the week. In this episode, we are stacked with some good-ass reviews, uh, one of the fantastic new uh, heady and political Quelle Chris record guns. Be sure to check that review out. It is a great LP. Even greater, in my opinion, is the art pop and Baroque pop triumph of the new Wise Blood record, Titanic Rising. Oh, I'm so in love with that one. Uh, moving on from there, we're going to be talking about a ferocious punk album as well as a refreshing funky record of Afrobeat and New Wave fusions from Abibio Sound Machine, as well as New York rock outfit Show Me the Body. We're also going to hit you with some track reviews of the latest cuts from Schoolboy Q, Kevin Abstract, Little Uzi Vert, and also an exclusive segment from our amazing Let's Argue series that is specific to this episode. And uh, yeah, that's going to be it. That's going to be it for this episode. So get ready, strap in. Here we go. Ba-bam. And it's time for a review of the new Quelle Chris record, Guns. This is the latest full-length album from one of Detroit's oddest oddballs, Quelle Chris, a rapper slash producer who has been on a pretty incredible streak as of late. We had his examination of self on Being You Is Great, I Wish I Could Be You More Often back in 2017. He followed that record up last year with a really great collaborative effort with his significant other, Gene Gray, Everything's Fine. And now we have Guns, which is uh, about a lot of things specifically guns and gun violence, that's one of the things. But if I had to condense the philosophy or the idea behind this album, I would say that it's kind of a large-scale reaction to America's current political climate. And all of this is fed through the quirky, absurd lens that Chris typically filters everything in his music through. I think the production on Guns over here is decidedly jazzier than it's been on Chris's past couple of LPs. There are also a few cuts on here where he seems to take on more singing duties, even embracing some neo-soul vibes like on the track Straight Shot. Between the soul and jazz influences on this record, the consistently conscious lyrics, as well as the mournful and somber tone across this thing generally, Guns may be Chris's most self-serious record yet, which I think is a pretty significant change of pace considering this is the man who previously released a song titled Super Fun. But also, I think Guns is an album that a lot of Two Pippa Butterfly fans will enjoy quite a bit. I want to stress, though, I don't think this album is some Kendrick ripoff or some record that just rides on Kendrick's coattails. Still, despite the shift in style Guns presents along with the more sober tone, Chris very much still maintains his unique, somewhat cartoonish character, his satirical wit, also his sharp sense of irony. Still, I am pretty impressed that Chris has managed to deliver a good handful of cuts on this record where he drifts away from his somewhat goofy demeanor on previous tracks, like the title track, which features all of these cascading jazz piano chords and melodies, skating steadily over this kind of lazy, stuttering hip-hop beat with some thumping drums and a very low bass. Chris, over this instrumental, spitting bars in his very nasally voice about the omnipresence of firearms in America, gun violence, the gun lobby, as well as the culture of fear that fuels a demand for guns in the U.S. He also packs these haunting calls of why, why, why in the background. Miraculously, Chris is so good at delivering these sung hooks, I'm surprised he hasn't been doing it more often earlier. Even if his voice does come off weak at certain points on this album, it does still have a lot of character to it. There's the track Straight Shot on this record, where there is legitimate pain in Chris's voice. It is a little tough to pay direct attention to Chris's singing on the song because he does sound like he's about to crack. It can make you feel a little choked up. I also presume the track has some suicidal undertones to it as well. Between the pessimistic verses on this thing, and I don't think it takes that much to read into the mantras on this track of it being a straight shot from here, here being where, like this plane of existence. And if this track is not a statement on suicide, it's at the very least a statement on the long-lasting and negative impacts that 
uh, gun violence can have. Then there's the track You, Me, and Nobody Else, which sort of breaks with this album's very morbid and socially charged themes and delivers a straight love song featuring Chris's significant other, Jean Grey, which I'm kind of surprised this track actually didn't end up landing on their collaborative album, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a sweet track with some glamorous and luxurious pianos on it, a wonderful beat, uh, some great sung hooks, and uh, if this song is a show of anything, it's most likely that we're going to be hearing music from these two for a very long time. Outside of these tracks, though, that, again, they're a bit more sung, they're a bit more serious. This record delivers a lot of freaky and totally out there bangers that essentially paint a preposterous portrait of our sorry state of social affairs. There's the track Mind Your Bidness, where we essentially have a protagonist who uh, wants to party, have a good time, and be left totally alone. Don't bother him. He doesn't want to be pestered, and if you do pester him, he'll threaten you or will hurt you. The beat also features all these like weird whooshing, bubbling samples that uh, tickle the ears in a weird way. A kind of stiff and funny synth line, some subliminal bass. Mostly this track appeals because of Chris's incredible attitude on it. I like the bars on this thing generally, even if there are a few head scratchers here and there. I run game with the genie no cheat code for the Philip Psycho Killer like Devo. And Psycho Killer is a talking head song, I'm absolutely sure. I don't know if there's some kind of like subtext to that simile that uh, I'm, not, I'm not quite getting. There's also the track Obamacare, where Chris pens one of the funniest hooks of his entire career. Puffin Michael Jordan catch a lot of air, shutting down your city, then we out of there. Everyone can get it like Obamacare. Keep it, buddy. <laughs> they don't want no problems here. For whatever reason, the instrumental kind of reminds me of that of uh, Really Doe off of Danny Brown's Atrocity Exhibition, between the thumping beat and the sort of plucky, haunting melodies. Though Chris's delivery and flows are significantly different, and also this instrumental features a, a lot of strange, scrapey acoustic chords that uh, bring a very strange texture. Whatever it is, I, I like it. I like it a lot. I like it a lot. The song It's the Law is a very funny and genius comment on laws and their unfair application across lines of race or class. You can tell that's pretty much Chris's intention with the track, given the opening vocal snippet about white supremacy. Also, the song is one of a few moments on this record that directly references Donald Trump's infamous uh, if I shot a guy on Fifth Avenue quote, as Donald Trump is a prime example of the law not applying to the rich and powerful. I also love Chris's nagging refrains on this track that are just delivered in, in such a wonderfully tongue-in-cheek way. It's the law! It's the law! Also, a killer opening verse on this track. Uh, let he who is without cast the first get out of our country. Oh, the hypocrisy. Another tongue-in-cheek alter to democracy to help normalize the day today atrocities. Then we have Box of Wheaties, a track that is as swanky as it is catchy, as funky as it is funny. I love the nostalgic and loungy soul samples placed throughout this track. Chris ridiculously bragging about what he's done to deserve the front spot on a box of Wheaties. The instrumental on the track PSA Drug Fest 2003 sounds like an old Wu-Tang beat, but like with a black-and-white horror movie eerie organ sample thrown in. I guess this track is also a sequel to the song Drug Fest 2002 off of Chris's Innocent Country. Ultimately, the song is yet another commentary on drug use, but it's much more subtle and narrative-based than the uh, a previous drug fest, which was way more over the top and very cartoony. As a statement, PSA drug fest, I think, can be taken a lot more seriously. I will say this thing is not a perfect album throughout, though. Generally, the features on this thing are pretty great, I'll say that much. But when it comes to the mixing of some of the instrumentals on this thing, it can get a little wonky, especially when it comes to the vocals and some of the sung vocals, the vocal layering, the harmonies. There are a few tracks here that I wish did have more song structure, that they do go a little stale, especially Drug Fest, especially The Closer, which I still admire as a meditation on Chris's popularity and his trajectory in music, asking the listener if he'll be remembered for his music, but ironically, it's, it's easily one of the least memorable tracks on the entire record, even though it is pretty heartfelt. I also find the flow of this album kind of odd. It's strange to me that the record is essentially bookended with uh, these very sad and mellow tracks, and then every single ridiculous and absurd moment on the album is sort of just 
collapsed into the middle with no overarching theme or thread pulling it all together outside of just generally the album is a bit jazzier, a bit more political, a bit sadder, though not so much to the point where it's a complete departure from what we usually get from him. Still, though, I do think this is a great album. It is another example of Chris's continued streak of creativity, and I'm glad that there are actually a, a lot of other people who came to realize this record was so good even before I talked about it in this video. It's really cool to see people finally kind of recognizing how great of a rapper and uh, uh, an artist Chris is. And I'm absolutely very happy to contribute to a growing sense of excitement around this album by saying I love it as well. I'm feeling a decent eight on this thing. Transition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new Wise Blood album, Titanic Rising. This is the latest full-length album from singer and songwriter Natalie Maring, aka Wise Blood. Titanic Rising may be the first album from Natalie Maring on the Sub Pop label, but she has dropped many, many, many records to get to this point. She actually has played bass in the long-running experimental rock band Jackie O Motherfucker as well. And for years now, I've been hearing Wise Blood songs here and there that I've thought were decent, but there's never been quite enough of a wow factor to pull me into an entire album, loving it from front to back. I did enjoy hearing her team up quite a bit in 2017 with Ariel Pink for a, a pretty sweet EP. And Natalie's last record under the Wise Blood name, even though I wasn't crazy for it, it was the closest I had come up until that point to being enchanted by her, her music. Her particular brand of psychedelic ambient spacey folk and pop. Going even further back into Natalie's discography reveals a pretty impressive artistic evolution up until this point, given that a lot of her early works were pretty noisy, experimental, drony, and now with Titanic Rising we have this pure expression of lavish, exuberant pop. It's just straight pop. Sure, it's kind of vintage and a little nostalgic in its style and aesthetic. The instrumentals and the songwriting on this record are heavily, heavily, heavily reminiscent of the folk pop and chamber pop of the late 60s and early 70s, with a few progressive passages thrown in a la early Kate Bush. There are also some indie contemporaries out there with equally lavish and dreamy sounds that I think this record shares a lot of overlap with. A little bit of Beach House, especially some Julia Holter. Very much Julia Holter. Some of the chord progressions on this album might resonate heavily with fans of the Elephant Six Collective. To get a major Achilles heel with this record out of the way, when it comes to having a voice with character, I think Natalie does have some ground to make up for on this LP. I wouldn't say she has the most recognizable voice in the room, but she does sing incredibly well, she has good range, she also has the talent to be pulling off these lead vocals and vocal harmonies in the background, which I guess if she had a quirky or a more idiosyncratic vocal style might come off a bit more awkward. Still though, the instrumentals on this thing are layered so well. They're EQ'd nicely, they're mixed cleanly, it's a very very panoramic feel, you really get a, a good taste and a view of all of the instrumentation. The perfect amount of pillowy softness to the instrumentation as well, a little bit of reverb, a little bit of splash, just to add some space. The instrumentals on this thing also feature some pretty nice dynamic swells on these tracks too. It's not just a, a formless droney blob of, of reverb, a, a hollow mess of nothing, where every single sound is sort of like bleeding into itself throughout the entire record and it just like has no body to it. It's not a monolithic wall of meh. Shout out to Jonathan Rado of Foxygen fame for taking part in the production on this thing, as well as Wise Blood too. Just generally, the production here, it's mwah, 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 mwah. Between the heavenly pianos and the slinky guitars, the gentle bass, the very simple drums that do drop some very effective fills here and there, the airy organs, the wonderful strings. The color palette on this album is great. Sounds very rich, sounds very glamorous, even if at points it is a little similar to those contemporaries I mentioned earlier. But one of the things I think separates Wise Blood from them on this record are some of the overtly vintage nods she makes throughout the tracks on this album, like on the song Every Day, where you can hear these very prominent saloon-style piano chords and cheeky hand claps. It's a little glammy, too. You can eventually hear these rising, 
vocal harmonies that feel like they're lifted straight out of the Beach Boys playbook. But even though there is a heaping helping of nostalgia packed throughout this record, I think Wiseblood combines all of these older pop elements together in a way that feels very modern. And one more thing that makes Titanic Rising stick out is how straightforward and instantaneously orgasmic the songwriting is. Every hook on this thing pops, even on the tracks that are just maybe like, okay. And what's funny is that Natalie achieves this without putting out an album that's really all that punchy or overly aggressive or anything like that. I mean, some of the best chorus transitions throughout this record feel like I am just being overwhelmed with sound and emotion, like what happens when you let the floodgates open on a really cathartic cry. Natalie somehow captures that exact energy on the track Something to Believe, just as we are hit very subtly with this light drum fill, and then on comes this mountain of what sounds like harpsichord and weepy guitars and droney bass. I just laid down and cried. The waters don't really go by me. The whole thing makes me want to throw on some lipstick, my prettiest dress, and just lay back and stare into space longingly. What? And look, and when I say every song on this thing enchants to some degree, every song on this thing enchants. The opening track on this thing feels like I'm, I'm opening a, a, a giant set of, of great double doors to a, a beautiful, wonderful hall of wonderful wonder. It starts off subtle and eventually changes into this glitzy and glamorous chamber pop, featuring the kind of string accompaniment that made David Bowie's best tracks feel larger than life. Then there's the sad and elegant Andromeda, which makes me feel like I'm, I'm living in the front cover of the album itself. Feeling kind of sad and isolated and weightless in a room totally submerged underwater. This is also one of many, 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 many instances of Natalie on the record singing... Uh, uh, just some very difficult lyrics about love. Stop calling, it's time to let me be, if you think you can save me, I dare you to try. Also on the song Every Day, sailing off on the ships to nowhere, got a lot of things to clear away, got a lot of years of bad love to make okay. These painfully sad lyrics contrast really well with the track's jaunty instrumental. It is an excellently arranged piece of sunshine pop. It's instantly addictive and features this grand outro that's on the level of a group like uh, The Who. And to take it back to the lyrics a little bit, love really is like the main focus of a lot of the material on this thing. And it seems like Natalie is kind of circling around a certain person or a certain relationship. I don't know who or what relationship it is that Natalie is so deeply infatuated with on this record that is just sort of itching at her, but these feelings of sadness and loss and loneliness and longing and desire, they permeate every corner of this album. I also like the stiff lead vocals and swelling analog synth notes, as well as the dizzying synth arpeggios that are just locked in very robotically, uh, that play at the very start of the song movies. Sounds like the kickoff of a, a Laurie Anderson or a Tangerine Dream Odyssey or something. The song eventually moves into this fantastic buildup, feels truly intergalactic. The reverbs on the vocal harmonies here just ring out into oblivion. The title is so utterly fitting because this song just feels cinematic, the most cinematic on the entire record. For the very end, we reach this heavy, drony climax with driving drums. A lot of sound bleeding into itself, but it's so explosive, it's so hard-hitting. Uh, the, the chaos of it really just kind of adds to the excitement factor. It's in the last leg of the record where I think things trail off just a little bit, or Natalie and Jonathan start slightly painting themselves into a corner. The song Wild Time is a cute and folky oasis on the album, but it's it's not one of the most solid tunes, in my opinion. Doesn't pop quite as hard as much of everything else here. Meanwhile, Mirror Forever. has a solid tune at the core of it, but the instrumental, I think, could use a, a bit more variation when the chorus eventually does come in. Uh, instrumentally, it does feel like a bit of a dud. A bit blobby and one-dimensional, in my opinion. The song Picture Me Better, thankfully, is a better tune, better instrumental, sees the acoustic elements of this album embraced even further. The chorus is one of the most angelic on the entire record, and lyrically, it feels like a kind of idyllic send-off for this album's themes of, again, 
romance and love and not so much romance and love. Sure, the relationship on this thing seems like it never really fully completed or connected, but this track does leave us with a positive sense of closure, I guess. But yeah, this album is great. This is fire. The songs, the production, the arrangements, which are near genius most of the time. The mostly watertight track list. I like the few transitional moments peppered throughout this album too. I mean, sure, a few lulls on the back end, but overall I think the album's biggest issue is that Natalie could be doing a lot more, I think, to put her own unique spin on this sound and on this style which I've heard done again and again and again before. Though, again, tons of respect for the fact that in this instance she has performed within this chamber pop and art pop style so well. In fact, after this record, I would say that I'm very much looking forward to hearing Natalie continue to explore and experiment and uh, find her own lane within this style, or even move on to something else. Who knows? Very solid, very beautiful, feeling a strong eight to a light nine on this thing, transition. Into, into the next the review. Woo, 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 woo. And it's time for a review of the new Abibio Sound Machine album, Doko Mean. The endlessly groovy Abibio Sound Machine, they are back with their third full-length album, second for Merge Records. They are a group that hails from London and is fronted by singer Eno Williams. The band began to start turning heads in the middle of this decade as a new face on the amazing, amazing, amazing Soundway Records label, which usually specializes in uncovering lost musical gems on the international scene through compilations that cover everything from Panamanian funk to Thai jazz. Abibio's sound, though, borrows heavily from the world of old-school Afrobeat, which of course made them a good fit for the label, but they were very much updating this style of music by fusing it with the sounds of Electro and New Wave, which for me is a pretty exciting proposition. But the group's debut album was a little gray, kind of one-dimensional. The performances were there, the energy was there, the fusion of genres was there, but not so much the songs and the production was just a little flat. When the band eventually made it over to Merge Records and got a better recording for their follow-up record a few years later, they delivered a handful of tracks that were way more lush and punchy and detailed. Aside from a few lulls and duds in the track list, pretty much everything I wanted out of an Abibio Sound Machine album turned up on this record. So a couple of years later, here we are with the group's next offering, Doko Mean, and we're essentially seeing the band bring a few more sounds, a few more genres into the fold, but with some mixed results, I guess. Of course, there are some true blue, funky, Afrobeat bangers on this thing. The song Tell Me with its driving drum beat and pulsating synth bass, as well as its rhythmic embellishments, feels like a great cross-section of Afrobeat music and new wave. Certainly nothing new for Abibio, but a track that can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the group's best bangers up until this point. Eno herself is caught in the whirlwind of all this groovy instrument instrumentation and vocally is essentially just riding the rhythmic wave, dropping in these cool little quick vocal riffs that kind of play off of the instrumental. And when the horns come in on this thing, it's over. It's a jam! Wanna Come Down, also a highlight on here, sees the group rocking a pretty classic synth-funk groove. Eno on top, bringing her usual blend of English and Abibio lyrics. The track essentially sounds like a giant cross-cultural dance party. The intro track on this thing isn't bad either. It might have a more measured groove than that of many other songs on this record. But there's such a cool cross-section of sounds on this thing. The rigidly sequenced synths, the classic soul girl group background vocals, the multi-dimensional drums, the the psychedelic guitar solo. Also, Eno drops one of the best hooks on this thing. I need you to be sweet like sugar. Which in a way kind of reminds me of the flow and the pacing of Grandmaster Flash's The Message. Don't push me cause I'm close to the Edge. So there are a lot of hard-hitting, groovy, and danceable highlights on this thing. Where Dokomine actually ends up faltering is in pretty much exactly the same places that Abibio's last full-length album faltered. You have flimsy ballads and mellow cuts on this thing that aren't really all that well written, and they're not complemented all that well in the linear fashion with which the band performs and, and writes their tunes. Getting lost more in the drive and the direction and the groove of a track than the composition of it. So yeah, I think some of the mellow cuts on here could use a bit more restructuring, better writing, sharper choruses. And in these contexts on the album where Eno's voice is left with a lot more space 
to work with, rarely does her singing actually stun. Especially on the track Guess We Found A Way, where her singing just sounds like really bad karaoke, even if I do like the instrumental kickoff of the song, which sounds like an interesting combination of neo-soul and some euphoric psychedelic rock from Australia. And just like on the last record, Abibio pops in a couple of tracks that feel less like finished songs and more like just I don't know, random ideas that weren't developed all that far, but they made it onto the album anyway. I mean, in a way it does feel like I'm listening to the same album over again, but in sort of a diminished capacity. Granted, there are a few added genre fusions that didn't make it onto the last album. The eighth track on here is probably the furthest the band has ever drifted from any Western music influences ever. And I'm also loving how the band included all of these jazz pianos on Basquiat. But still, even with this, I can't say Abibio has necessarily improved upon their sound or their style or their ability to craft an album in any significant way from a few years ago to now. It's still not a bad record. The jams are incredible. They alone make this album very much worth your time, even if some of the deep cuts on this thing are a little awkward or underwhelming. I'm feeling a light to decent seven on this thing. Transition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new Show Me The Body album, Dog Whistle. This is the latest full-length LP from New York rock band Show Me The Body, who made an explosive debut with the album Body War back in 2016, which was one of my favorites of that year, mostly because of this album's raw recording and its very unique blend of all things punk and hip-hop and noise. The band eventually followed this project up with a very collab-heavy mixtape the next year, Corpus One, which in my opinion had its moments, but uh, was just a little too messy and inconsistent to make a big deal over. On Corpus, Show Me The Body did bring some amazing versatility to the table though, because this is probably the only band out there that can effectively pull off a droney post-trip-hop cut featuring Princess Nokia, and also a glitchy industrial rap banger with Denzel Curry, as well as a lightning-fast hardcore punk barn burner threatening the right-wing street gang known as the Proud Boys. And I would like to continue thinking of Show Me The Body as a group unique enough to pull off all those things. A group that successfully sits at all of these different genre crossroads in the underground, but their latest effort here, Dog Whistle, is more of a pure expression of punk rage. A lot of the hip-hop and electronic sounds that informed their work up until this point have kind of faded away. Most likely not forever, but that lack of an overt hip-hop influence is still the case on this new LP, and that's kind of a head-scratcher for me, as that and all of the other genres that subtly impacted Show Me The Body's sound were one of the things that made the group so unique, so interesting. And to jettison all of that at this point just seems like a strange choice. But that's not to say the band and this record have no redeeming qualities without all of that. It's, that's, that's untrue. Because Dog Whistle is still a pretty crushing combination of New York punk and noise rock and blistering hardcore. The grinding bass on this thing, the booming drums, the blaring, ear-piercing banjo licks, the guttural, screamed, animalistic vocals, the incredibly raw recording. It has a nice, clean punch to it, but it still is filthy enough to make you feel like you have to take a shower after listening to it. This thing also features a pretty tight track list at just around 28 minutes. The speed and the ferocity of the performances on these tracks make all of that feel like it's going by even faster than it is, even as the band is bold enough to pack some of these songs out past the three minute mark. Not usually something a lot of punk bands these days do, especially punk bands that sound as raw and as noisy and as auditorily disgusting as Show Me The Body does on Dog Whistle. The opener, which is four minutes, kicks off with these very spaced out, milky bass lines, their chorus, it sounds like the uh, beginning of like an 80s post-punk album, even as the building melodic forlorn banjo licks in the background just get louder and louder. Eventually though, we are blasted with these screeching punk riffs, some pounding drums as well, and even though the band is sounding really primal in this moment, Lyrically, they're actually delivering a pretty smart critique of the band's cycle of survival, working, performing, working, performing, working, performing. This illustrates a picture of Show Me The Body being plugged into what they're doing just as they would be like any other job. The no work will set you free mantra on this track I think is really important to remember, especially as uh, someone who is a 
millennial who is subject to a lot of media and a lot of articles and think pieces that say, oh, the freelance economy is so amazing. It allows you to just do whatever you want to do. You're doing stuff on your own terms. You, you, know, you know, do what you love for a job and you'll never work a day in your life. When honestly, even doing something as cool as being in a band can just be another rut to dig yourself into. I also love the heavy and demented breakdown on this track. The slight sloppiness of the delivery just makes it seem a little refreshing and kind of weird, mutant. The next highlight on the record for me is the anti-cop anthem Badge Grabber, which kicks off with this near deadpan spoken word, these industrial cycling skipping hits of, of what sounds like this this uh, pounding bass or percussion. Gung, 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 gung. Eventually the band turns on this flood of drums and vocals and screaming banjos, the only thing more confrontational than the sound of this track are the lyrics. Part of a monolith, you will get nothing back, not even your pride, not even your life. Part of a monolith, how it feel to die inside. In the end, in the streets, you will die outside. The brutal weirdo breakdowns I mentioned earlier, they turn up on this track too. This cut is absolutely hideous and in the best way possible. The next cut that really wowed me in the track list here had to be Forks and Knives, mostly for its explosive rap rock breakdown in the second third of the track. The song suddenly brings these old school rap flows and jump the fuck up riffs. It's like listening to the band Lightning Bolt if they were collaborating with Korn on that track that they had Ice Cube on. The song Now I Know is not a favorite for me on here, but it at least stands out for it being the band's first attempt at uh, trying to do something more low-key. It's a dejected and despondent cut that really tones down the aggression the vocals are delivered in like this near spoken word. I wish the overall message of the track was brought home a bit better or made a bit clearer, but uh, still, the song is unsettling to say the least. The song Arcanum has a similarly slow build, but with a better payoff between this and now I know I wish the band just kind of kept this cut, especially since the distorted banjo licks that kick this song off definitely make it a uh, an aesthetic standout in the track list. Meanwhile, the closing track, USA Lullaby, I'm not super crazy about the tune at the core of this one, but the build of it is pretty interesting, as it seems like the chord progressions are mostly handled by these pitched samples of like droning walls of noise. How the band is conjuring this noise and making it do what they're doing, I don't really know. It sounds like what you would get if the band No Age were forced to write a record for crust punks. There are a few other cuts in the track list here like Drought as well as Madonna Rocket that hit some pretty good grooves and straightforward riffs. They just feel like very meat and potatoes punk with uh, maybe a noisier or a more bombastic edge. And overall, I mean, I think this record is pretty good. I like it. I'm not head over heels for it. There are some spots that I wish were more original. There are some riffs and songs that I think are kind of generic, but generally I do like the recording. I do like the lyrics. I like how hard this thing hits. I am sad to see the diversity of influences and sounds on a Show Me the Body album dwindle a little bit, even if they did manage to come through the more focused effort on this one. Pretty enjoyable record, especially if you're looking for a punk release that has a, a lot of lyrics that really burn the status quo to the ground, come off a little nihilistic at points too. I'm feeling a strong six to a light seven on this thing. Hey buddy, did you hear the news? It's track reviews. And it is time for a track review. Schoolboy Q Chopsticks featuring Travis Scott. A last single, Num Num Juice, hit pretty hard. It was a grimy-ass single, a little on the short side, though. Uh, thought it could have used a bit more bulk to it, but still not a bad start. And uh, this new cut over here featuring Travis Scott seems a little more of size. Travis, you know, could potentially bring a fire hook or a verse on this thing. Uh, Schoolboy is most likely going to be as, as mean and as nasty and as gritty as he typically is. Um, not sure exactly how these two are going to complement each other, but um, I don't know, hoping for and expecting the best. So let's give this, a, let's give this track a shot. Schoolboy Q, Travis Scott, new single, Chopsticks, uh, ba-bam! <laughs> Okay, I gotta stop this. I gotta stop this. What the hell is this? What the hell am I listening to? This is not good. 
the beat on this thing is utterly generic. It's very synthetic and it's very uh, kind of fat and bulky and you could just kind of sit back in it and recline like a, I don't know, a really ugly looking lazy boy. It's kind of chilling. It's got some pretty fat and rough synth bass, but that's really the only redeemable thing about the instrumental here. I mean, through and through, it's a pretty standard trap beat, but that's not even really what truly makes the song so terrible. Chopsticks here serves as yet another example of a song catching Travis Scott featureitis, where Travis Scott featuring on a song means that the track has to be kind of fat and psychedelic and just very laid back trap. It's almost like everything about the song just serves to feature Travis Scott, even though he himself is the featured artist. So there's that. There's also the matter of this being one of the most half-assed and phoned-in hooks of Travis Scott's entire career. Like, not only is the vocal line here terrible, chopsticks, chopsticks, chop, 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 chop. If we did a top 10 of all the songs where it sounded like Travis Scott was absolutely not trying at all, this would easily fall into the top five. So the chorus on this thing, I mean, just should have gone right into the recycling bin. But on top of it, Schoolboy Q doesn't even really provide that much substance in the verses. Absolutely generic flow measured delivery. He has nowhere near as much bite in his voice or as much fire in his belly as we expect from him. What he's going on about in the lyrics doesn't really seem to stand out all that much either. You know, just uh, some mentions of bad habits, kind of calling back to his past stuff, um, a lot of bragging, uh, flexing. So flows on this thing are boring, generic, forgettable, and underwhelming. The lyrics are absolutely forgettable as well. The chorus has little to no redeeming value about it. Uh, Travis and Q are both punching under their weight here, and the beat is really average, dime a dozen, and run of the mill. So I don't know, guys. New single here, it's pretty rough and not really feeling all that hype on it at all. In fact, again, I would just kind of say I feel like it's it's not good, not really all that good. I'm gonna lay down some quick thoughts on this brand new Kevin Abstract Arizona Baby single even though it seems like it runs a little bit more like an EP. And Kevin Abstract, you guys should already know him as a singer, a songwriter, a producer, uh, one of the main brains in Brockhampton, and also a man who's been dropping his own solo material for a while. At this point, you should be familiar with American Boyfriend. Uh, if not, the dude creates a pretty unique atmosphere of hip-hop and R&B and acoustic and singer-songwriter music, and it's a pretty uh, intimate and a personal record that I think I have come to appreciate a lot more in retrospect. But anyway, so Kevin has dropped new material over here, which is exciting and interesting given that there are a lot of fans out there that have been theorizing and guessing as to when you might see Brockhampton fracture a little bit, and you might see members of the group that are personal favorites of certain fans come out with their own solo material. Uh, Kevin is now doing that, obviously, though it's not that much of a surprise given how much solo material he had before Brockhampton blew up, so probably not that big of a deal for him to be doing something like this. Although he has dropped this picture on social media where you have these three separate dates, the first of which was pretty much the day that he dropped this EP over here, and we're assuming that maybe he's going to drop more EPs or more solo material or more something on the next couple of weeks. And again, assuming that that's going to be music as well. We have this first EP or this first occurrence on these three dates here in front of us, Arizona Baby. And uh, it's a decent trio of tracks. The whole thing kicks off with Big Wheels, which is a, a pretty straightforward hip hop track with a kind of influenced trap beat, although uh, a lot of the synths surrounding the beat are a little warped, a little wonky, kind of strange, sort of surreal. Kevin's flow is decent. There are a lot of bars on this track calling people out for uh, claiming that he's not gay or that he's queer baiting and so on and so forth. It's a pretty short cut, not too unlike a lot of the uh, sort of one minute tracks we've seen thrown into the Brockhampton Saturation series. Um, you know, a bit of a bridge to nowhere. Uh, the Vocal mix and the instrumental mix are a little rough, and I would say that that's generally the case, even though it is better on the following two tracks, but that's generally the case on this single slash EP. I don't think Kevin brought super professional grade production and mastering on this handful of tracks over here, so if you're looking for something raw, uh, then I guess that's what he's delivering on this thing, although uh, I wouldn't necessarily say the tracks really approach that sort of lo-fi, 
homespun intimacy that fans enjoy so much about American Boyfriend. It sort of sounds very much like a tight and a primped and a high-budget studio project, but maybe it wasn't smoothed over all the way like it should have been. Uh, The following track over here, Joyride, is not a huge surprise on the influence side, given that it, it just sounds like Andre 3000 has had a huge, huge, huge impact on the sound of this cut. In fact, Uh, This song, in my opinion, sounds a lot like a song that could have been on his Love Below album. Uh, It's it's very much like Hey Ya inspired. Some real strong Hey Ya vibes coming off of this track, given the bustling beat, given the peppy, bright, kind of triumphant feel-good horns, uh, given the flow Kevin brings on this track, too. Uh, There are numerous things about this track that just oozes Andre 3000, uh, but I think Kevin unfortunately kind of fails to spin these influences into something that feels like it's uniquely him, unfortunately. I think he kind of drowns in his influences a little bit, or rather just drowns in his influence on this track quite a bit to the point where it is distracting, even though there are some enjoyable and some admirable elements uh, to this cut. Uh, Georgia ended up being my favorite of the bunch, though still had some really strong Andre influences on it. Um, especially when it came to Kevin's singing parts. The whole thing kicks off with this uh, auto-crooned acoustic passage that actually resembles something that you might have heard on like Young Thug's uh, Beautiful Thugger Girls, you know, those kind of like acoustic trap, pop rap, country fusions that he was doing on that record. It's almost like Kevin is uh, attaining that a little bit on this track over here. And it's, it's, it's not a a bad mix of sounds and influences. I think the tune, for the most part, is a bit more solid as well. I kind of found myself coming away from this one humming the tune. It was stuck in my head a bit more, whereas with Joyride, I feel like um, a lot of that song was kind of lost in the hustle and bustle of the speedy flows, the horns, the uh, very busy percussion, and the um, somewhat muddy and, and lackluster mix. Overall, with this handful of cuts over here, It's okay. Uh, To me, it reads more like something that a hardcore fan would want to listen to over and over and over and kind of indulge in. Uh, To me, this kind of feels like Kevin Abstract just trying out some sounds that inspire him and fooling around a little bit and just a bit of a trial and error kind of thing. This EP to me doesn't seem like it's indicative of any major new direction or ideas. I wouldn't even say it's it's all that experimental either. Uh, to me, it just kind of seems like Kevin embracing his influences, a very short list of them to the point where it becomes kind of distracting and there's nobody else there in the creative process to really balance that out and provide another idea, another voice, another something. So unfortunately, I feel like a lot of these songs come off a bit uh, one-dimensional. Um, and again, uh, not really attaining that, uh, uh, that youthful and that acoustic and uh, that kind of homespun intimacy that was so great about his previous solo material. Um, these uh, songs feel like they contain parts that very much could work in future Brockhampton tracks, but in order for that to be the case, like they would need to be assembled a bit better. Uh, There would need to be a wider variety of influences and voices going into every single one of these tracks. And, um, you know, I guess just more variety and risk-taking all all around. You know, again, okay single, okay EP. Uh, It's not anything I see myself jumping back into anytime soon. Um, Certainly, you know, I guess gives you a bit of insight as to uh, what sort of sounds and what sort of ideas and, and what artists Kevin gravitates to and and what sort of inspires him to do what he does. Hearing him rap from a more personal experience on the opening cut, whether it be about perceptions of his sexuality or his fame or his family, uh, was kind of interesting. But, um, you know, for the most part, I, I again, I don't think I'm going to be uh, rushing back to listen to Arizona Baby anytime soon. Not for it being awful or anything like that, but I guess just generally underwhelming. And it is time for a couple of track reviews. The one and only Little Uzi Vert. Uh, apparently, he's not so much out of the rap game as we think he might have been a little while ago when he said that he was he was getting out. He's got a few new tracks out. Uh, hopefully, Eternal Atake is still on the way. Fingers crossed. The two new tracks that he has dropped out of the blue on YouTube are That's a Rack and Sanguine 
Paradise. Uh, we're going to give both a try. We're going to see what's up, see what direction he might be moving in sonically and stylistically. He dropped that free Uzi cut a little while ago, which I liked actually quite a bit, his flow on that song was pretty hard. His delivery was more aggressive than usual. The instrumental was pretty raw as well. Not sure if these two songs are going to be going in that direction too, but uh, I don't know. Let's just see what Uzi has to offer on these new cuts, starting with That's a Wreck. Ba-bam. <laughs> All right, uh, impressions on this first track over here is that it is very uneventful and kind of vapid, honestly. I mean, there are some likable elements to it. Uh, Uzi's flow isn't bad. I mean, it's not impressive, but it's catchy. You know, the, that's a rack, that's a rack, and the water on my neck, swim through that. Um, yeah, I mean, again, pretty sticky moments, but not some of the best refrains he's written in his entire life. Uh, verses, for the most part, went through one ear and out the other outside of this one bit uh, after the first leg where he puts on his best young thug impression and gets kind of a, a squeaky voiced and very nasally. I actually had to check. I thought it was literally uh, possibly thugger on the song, but it was just little Uzi Vert doing... Um, I guess, again, his best impression. The instrumental at first started off pretty well. The trap percussion was pretty basic but effective, and I liked the uh, uh, kind of lonely, sad piano leads that were playing throughout the song that sound like something out of an anime or just like, you know, like a really dramatic and, and moving RPG, man. Definitely sounds like something that could be from one of those two things. But once the sub bass on this instrumental kicks in, uh, some of the minor intervals of the bass line don't even sound like they go with the chords of the lead piano melodies on this track. I mean, I could be wrong, but... Um, Again, some of the minor intervals of, of the bass, they sound horrid against these chord progressions, and I'm not sure uh, what exactly compositionally the producer was trying to accomplish here with that, as it just sounds awkward, sounds really out of place, and I think ruins the very blissful and kind of wavy vibe of the song, honestly. So yeah, those are pretty much my thoughts on this track. Let's give the next one here a try and see if we have anything better going on. Ba-bam. <laughs> Okay, impressions on the second cut here. It was definitely better than That's a Rack, I'll say that much. Uh, Uzi's energy and delivery and performance here were a bit more amped and energized. I think the, uh, what were they, these fake little horn synths laid throughout the track were uh, uh, kind of cute and made the song feel a little triumphant. Uh, the bass felt like it fit properly into the... Uh, uh, musical theory of the elements floating on top of it, unlike the last track, at least that's how it felt to me. Like the last song on this track, Uzi's performance and writing kind of reminded me of another artist too, and uh, and that's definitely Lil Wayne. There are a lot of moments in the lyrics here where it seems like he's uh, very much trying to emulate Wayne's one-liner and, and wordplay style. I mean, definitely not really there. Even Lil Wayne on some of his most lackluster material lyrically is uh, wittier and and funnier than I think Little Uzi was on this track. But still, I mean, there were even some lines on here like the uh, Geico line and the uh, fish stick line and the uh, vine line that I thought, uh, at least on some level, were uh, uh, kind of cute, kind of funny. I will say the opening refrain that is repeated at another point in the song was a little clunky, especially that first opening line, which I think you could have turned into something a lot tighter and a lot catchier. We'd be throwing money in a spiral. Every time your girl hear my song, yeah, turn her right into my hoe. Which just seems like a little too long to be matching that rhyme. Kind of puts the track in a position where right at the start of it, it's kind of failing to... Uh, flow in a way that is instantaneous and really clicks. Still, again, having said all that, I did prefer it to That's a Rack, uh, even if overall it didn't really blow me away, and I'm not really sure if this is making me all that excited for where Uzi is going on his next project. <laughs> 
Streaming is going to be the downfall of the music industry as people will stop buying physical copies and therefore artists will only receive minuscule amounts of money off of streams. Look, people are already, like, not buying physical copies of records. I mean, sure, you have record collectors out there and you have boomers and you have Gen Xers that are still kind of, like, holding on and, and love the format, and there's most likely always going to be physical copies floating around for those collector types out there on the market, but... Um, you know, we're almost already there with the whole not buying music thing. And I don't think music streaming is going to kill the music industry necessarily because if you look at the money the music industry is making now, that amount of money is more money than ever. So the music industry, the record labels, the streaming platforms that we're talking about here, uh, they are making money hand over fist. And as long as they are making money and they have the money, uh, they will have that cash to dole out to different artists and say, hey, you make an album, you make an album, we're signing you, we're signing you, we're signing this person, we're signing that person. So as long as there's cash flow there, there's always going to be some kind of incentive uh, for artists to make albums. Because there are going to be artists who want to be paid, there are going to be artists who want that million dollar payout. Where we are going to have issues is that we have a lot of artists who are at the midpoint of the industry, they're not like Lady Gaga or anything, but they're still making a full-time living. We have artists that uh, are a lot more obscure and underground, and they are going to be the ones, ultimately, that end up suffering. They are going to have the harder time making the music they want to make because cost of living is so high and they can't soak all the time that they need to into not only recording and creating their album or their single or whatever, but also getting it off the ground marketing-wise, which is a whole other part of the job of existing and succeeding in the music industry. It's not just a matter of coming out with a good album or even coming out with a great music video for whatever song you have off the record. Uh, the whole marketing side of getting your music out there is a huge part of it, and most people in the music industry will tell you, uh, you know, if they don't have a team of marketing people behind them working for them and doing all that legwork, uh, a lot of artists out there unfortunately spend more time pushing their music than they do making their music. And look, we're already kind of seeing the negative effects of this as we have tons of artists now who are industry plants and they come from these places of incredible wealth and privilege. Why? Because they actually have been given the advantage and the opportunity to sink all of this free time that they have into making a record. They're not worried about where their next rent check or meal is coming from. And look, none of these things, in my opinion, I think will lead ultimately to the the death of the music industry, but I do think they I do think they lead to some not so good things, like an overall lack of artists and records that are willing to speak out about our current state of sorry social affairs. And thank you for listening to this latest episode of the Needle Drop Podcast. Make sure wherever you are listening to this podcast, you are subscribing, you're rating, you're reviewing, helps out the podcast. Also, shout out to Jonah for editing this episode together as fantastically as he does every other episode. Make sure to follow us over on social media, twitter.com slash the needle drop and the needle drop dot com a fantano over at instagram subscribe youtube.com slash the needle drop subscribe youtube.com slash fantano and we will see you guys in the next episode of the podcast you're the you're the best anthony fantano the needle drop podcast forever <laughs>